0: Hello, oh, and welcome back to the Towards Data Science podcast. Now, we'll be talking a lot about the data science life cycle today. And if you're a Towards Data Science reader, you'll know that we've had some really interesting articles on that topic as well. So. This actually seems like a really good place to remind everyone that if you have an idea for an article on that or any other interesting data science topic, don't let it sit in your drafts folder. Fire it away! Because I know a bunch of editors at Towards Data Science who would love to check that out. So, on to today's episode, which is going to be really interesting because it's rare that we get to spend an entire episode talking about just data. So let's say that you're a big hedge fund and you want to go out and buy yourself some data, right? Data is really valuable to you. It's literally going to shape your investment decisions and determine your outcomes. So you go out, you buy your data, and then a cold chill runs down your spine. How do you know that your data supplier gave you the data they said they would? From your perspective, you're just staring down 100,000 rows in a spreadsheet with no way to tell if half of them are made up, or maybe even more for that matter. And this might seem like an obvious problem in hindsight, but it's one most of us haven't even thought of. We tend to assume that data is data, and 100,000 rows in a spreadsheet is 100,000 legitimate samples. Now, the challenge of making sure that you're dealing with high-quality data, or at least that you have the data you think you do, is called data observability. And it's surprisingly difficult to solve for at scale. In fact, there are now entire companies that specialize in exactly that. One of those companies is called Zectonal, and their founder, David Herko, will be joining us for today's episode of the podcast. Dave spent his entire career studying data observability, the challenge of evaluating and understanding data at massive scale. And he did that first at AWS in the early days of cloud computing, and now through Zectonal, where he's working on strategies to allow companies to detect issues with their data, whether they're caused by intentional data poisoning or unintentional data quality problems. Dave joined me to talk about data observability, data as a new vector for cyber attacks, and the future of enterprise data management on this episode of the Tortoise Data Science Podcast. <music> The topic for the day is a little bit offbeat because we normally talk about uh, algorithms, scaled AI, alignment, safety, those sorts of things. I think the the story that we'll be exploring today is not entirely untold, but it is less explored, and it's no less important. I mean, we're really talking about data here, the kind of foundation on which all our models are built, and you've had a really fascinating journey in this whole space, in the space of what's now become known as data observability. I'd love to understand what, so first off, like, what brought you here, what brought you to this world, and then maybe give listeners a bit of a sense of, like, what is data observability as well?
1: Well, I think the journey to where we are today really starts with my time uh, early days at Amazon Web Services, at AWS, and kind of in the early days of cloud computing where we, we just saw the massive amounts of data that were being stored and collected. And as those storage costs started to go down and the ubiquitous kind of ability to have access to massive amounts of compute for really low costs, um, you know, everything started with a data centric world in my, in my mind. Uh, when joining AWS. Uh, Having been there for several years, I always like to say AWS is the second best company I've worked for. Um, Just a phenomenal experience. Uh, We decided to start our own company in about 2014. that was really focused on distributed analytics. So if you think about those early days of Hadoop and Spark, um, it was really folks didn't really think that you could run those kind of distributed systems in the cloud outside of aws a lot of the companies cloudera HortonWorks, were really kind of pushing more of an on-premise view and so we started a company um, to really focus on that and then we were involved in a lot of the alternative data fintech space where we're starting to see these really esoteric data sets that were being used by financial institutions hedge funds and the like and that was really kind of the first inkling of how do we start monitoring data like how how does the data that's feeding these algorithms um, how should we be treating that? And so I had an opportunity after about eight years of starting my last company to kind of start this new venture that we call Zectonal. And that was in February of 2021. And we were really focused on data observability. We weren't using the term at the time. I think it's a fairly new term that's kind of taken root mm. over the past couple of months, but the concepts are, are kind of similar. How do we look at trends in data that feed algorithms? Um, I wrote TensorFlow algorithms for several years and you start to really see that um, a lot of the errors that are inter- introduced into specifically training for machine learning algorithms come from abnormalities inside the data itself. It's not always the algorithm. You start to measure the performance of an algorithm. You start to say, well, wh- where are the discrepancies coming from on inference? And almost always it was coming from the data. So, you know, like all folks, like we, we started writing code and uh, in February, 2021. And, and here we are today with Uh, you know, our product that does data observability. And the final note on that is, uh, having come from a little bit of a cybersecurity background, I was fortunate enough to have started Apache Metron, which then kind of incubate all the way through to a top level Apache project. Um, We felt like that security just needed to be embedded in data observability. And so looking at kind of not only the characteristics of data quality, but are there threats inside of the data? And I know we'll talk a little bit more about that later, but that's that's kind of how we got here.
0: Right. And actually, I mean, that's such a great teaser for the, the massive iceberg we're about to unpack here with data security being connected with data observability. It's something that took me by surprise, actually, even though I was tangentially aware of some of the security issues, you know, that you can run into here and there. When, when I read some of the posts that you put together on the topic, like, wow, holy crap, like there's a there's a lot here. Um, so before we dive into that, though, I, I do want to unpack this term data observability maybe a little bit more looking at... Um, in particular, like what are some of the metrics, some of the ways that you judge uh, data quality when you're looking at obviously data observability, right? It's somehow tied to the assessment of data quality. Um, is is actually, that's a good question. Like is data observability almost like the, the verb, the action and then data quality is like the, the noun, the target of that action or how, how are those related? I,
1: I That's how we would define it. I mean, our customers define it really historically as like data characterization. And you think about the macro and micro trends in, Kind of how you acquire and ingest data. Um, and so for for a long time, we just called it data characterization. I think the industry has taken hold of the term data observability. Um, certainly it helps when you're defining markets and things like that go into Gartner magic quadrants, but I think it's really kind of looking at macro and micro trends and how you acquire data. So, you know, some of the key metrics, and, and we started to look at this early on kind of from my background, uh, service level agreements with data providers. Are you getting your data on time, you have an SLA for data arrival. If you're, you know, uh, a Wall Street trader building, you know, super fast algorithmic kind of trading platforms, like you want to make sure your data is getting there on time. And right. oftentimes, you don't want to be trading when your data doesn't come in. So sometimes something is just as easy as it, you know, do you have a green light or red light? Is your data coming in? And so we kind of started with that basic concept, and then you get into some kind of more higher level kind of data quality characteristics, like is your data stale? Um, Not only did your data not uh, come in, but is your data late? So we'd see oftentimes where, especially for like machine learning training, if your data came in a week late because your upstream data provider uh, somehow didn't get an ETL job done when you thought it was gonna get done. And all of a sudden you've got this model that's doing inference. What you believe is on real world kind of scenarios and then you get this whole bundle of data a week late. You know, what do you do? Like at least you want to know yeah. that the algorithm should be retrained or maybe it shouldn't. Um but you want to have an indication that maybe it's not necessarily complete. And then from there, you know, our customers make decisions whether to retrain or not. Um sometimes it's file size, file file volume, uh, a lot of times we'll see just basic things like are expecting, you know, 10,000 files a day. Did you at 10 less, um, you look at aggregate size per day, aggregate size per month, especially if you're buying data uh, from the commercial market. When you look at like ad tech data sets, when you look at location data sets, those are very, very expensive data sets for a lot of consumers. And so you want to know, like, am I getting everything that I bought? And, you know, it's beyond the ability for humans to kind of look at that and understand it. And so you really need tools and capabilities to kind of look at that. And so those are some of kind of like our macro kind of quality concepts. And then we think about uh, some of the, the more micro concepts. And so starting to peel back and look inside the data and starting to see like, you know, am I getting all the right columns as part of the schema? You'd be probably not surprised, but it's, it's surprising to me at least if you think about like tab separated files, CSV files, the amount of times that you may have like an unencapsulated comma that then creates an extra column at yeah. the end that throws out a whack some kind of downstream analytic system. And so again, at certain scale, you wanna be able to detect those things. Uh, We see patterns where null values start to get introduced into very large data sets. And you wanna start to quantify to say, you know, if my baseline is that 25% of the data in a parquet or a CSV file is null, but that starts to climb up to 50% null, you know that's an indication that something's amiss and of course those all have significant downstream impacts on algorithms that use the data so we think of like data observability as both kind of the macro and then the micro kind of trends that are going on
0: and i imagine you know if listeners who are thinking about this through the lens of some of the episodes we've done on safety like this also starts to become relevant too and you start to talk about in one case you mentioned data that comes in late well We have a word for that in AI safety, it's called out of distribution potentially, or you could be looking at at a problem like that. So making sure your data is is on time is actually a safety problem in many cases. Um, It's really fascinating. What's some, I'm curious, what's some of the the sort of, um, let's say funny business that you've seen happen with data providers? Because I did read about this a little bit. I I found it almost slightly amusing, uh, but it is also concerning. What are some of the the things that you've, your customers, your your clients have, have discovered when they've turned these sorts of observability tools on, uh, especially with respect to third-party data suppliers?
1: Sure. I mean, probably the funniest story I've ever heard. And, you know, it was a fairly significant financial services institution and they were running their data pipeline using a bunch of Python scripts that was running on somebody's laptop. And so we were looking at kind of the trend of when that data stopped flowing as part of our own kind of product and time series. And then we started to correlate to Well, the data stopped flowing every time that one data scientist uh, closed their laptop lid, right? And so then the pipeline kind of shut down. So, you know, you think about non-resilient data pipelines that are feeding kind of these, you know, very, you know, expensive, you know, revenue generating algorithms and there's something simple and silly like that. So, you know, it it was funny in hindsight, I think, you know, at the time we were just like, you know, Let's think about how to build a more reliable data pipeline here. But um, there's all sorts of things, people. I mean, it really just turns a light bulb on an area of focus that just a lot of organizations just aren't looking at. I mean, I think we're in an era where everyone understands that their data can be monetized. And so, you know, compared to five years ago where you have to convince people to save their data and store it in low cost. Um, Now we're really kind of evangelizing, like, are are you aware of the quality of the data? Um, If you asked a lot of CIOs and big enterprises, how much data are you storing? I think you may not always get the accurate answers. In fact, we're finding that a lot more CISOs uh, have a better appreciation for their data assets than maybe even the CIOs. But um, you know, the world's
0: changing where people are
1: wanting to quantify now, what is my data worth? Not only am I storing it, and I think we play a part in
0: Yeah, I mean, and and what a big problem too to take on as well at this point. Um, and, And to do that, actually, one metaphor, one analogy that you've started to lean on, I've noticed, is this idea of the data supply chain. Would you mind unpacking that a little bit? Like, What is a data supply chain in your eyes? So I'll use the example of
1: weather data, because I think weather data, surprisingly, is used by so many organizations. And so if you think about fusing weather data into other type analytics, uh, you know if you if you look at earning statements from like CEOs, um, a lot of times they'll blame bad earnings on like bad weather patterns, unforeseen weather patterns. And so how do you bake that into kind of your your algorithms? So weather data is typically bought by a data aggregator, but it's it, it's federated through many layers of a supply chain down to, probably an individual piece of hardware that you could put outside in your backyard or put into a park. So there's literally tens or hundreds of thousands of these devices spread out all over the world. And they all kind of generate this this data that gets aggregated, usually through multiple different companies. And what is really shocking to us is we'll go into uh, a client and we'll say, well, who are you buying your weather data from? And there's a couple big name weather data providers. Uh, and then we'll say, well, do you know where they're getting their data from? Because they're then buying their data from different aggregators and buyers. And so it goes all the way down. And so trying to track where is the actual source of your data coming from down to that individual sensor. And if you think about traditional supply chains and, and one that you know you study because of history is like you think about automotive supply chains, uh, some of the big car manufacturers, I mean, they know where every nut and bolt and screw comes from in their providers. And what's so surprising is our algorithms and and many of our training algorithms and analytic insights come from data that we really have no idea one step removed where it comes from. You know, we may be buying from a provider, but, you know, we never really ask where that provider's buying from or where that downstream provider's buying from. And so for us, that's really the idea of like the data supply chain and it's a global data supply chain. And it has, yeah, yeah.
0: Oh, sorry. No, I was just curious, like, do you think of the the data supply chain as including not just like where the data comes from, but then like the other steps in kind of the data processing, uh, the data lifecycle, essentially? That's all to you. That's part of that supply chain.
1: It is. It's, I mean, data lineage. How do you know um, that people aren't changing concepts slightly, you know, whether it's the name of a a header inside of a schema or a column or introducing some kind of errors? I mean, the really the way that we started thinking about data security was because there were just errors being introduced unintentionally as part of that supply chain. I think the CEO of NVIDIA always talks about data factories and, you know, each one of these aggregators is, is a data factory. They're taking in inputs and they're they're creating outputs and there's going to be anomalies. There's going to be errors. that are going to be introduced in that processing. And, you know, you carry those errors forward, you carry those quality issues forward all the way Upstream to where those the final product is being made, and that final product is in you know it's a model, it's an inferencing algorithm, it's a it's a BI analytic, and um, the ability to try to detect those early is really important.
0: And, and I guess just like a regular supply chain, bottlenecks show up in really weird and unexpected places. I mean, you just gave the story of this this one engineer who's opening and closing his laptop, causing an entire downstream effect to, to unfold. You know, not entirely unlike. Any, any number like TSMC in, in the semiconductor supply chain or uh, ever given that big cruise ship that bottles up the Suez and then all of a sudden our, good, our goods are 10 times more expensive or whatever. Like it, it's, it seems very apt, like this, this connection, um, as well as the, from a national security standpoint, you know, increasingly we're starting to look at our supply chains as a source of national security risk. Where are people inserting, you know, maybe where is China inserting stuff into our hardware or, or whatever else? Um, I'm curious about that aspect. Like, what are some of the, uh, those security implications then that you see the moment you start looking at data through a supply chain lens?
1: Yeah, we don't know. I mean, we're not that involved in the national security component of it. Oh, but sorry. Sure, but I, sure. I meant the cybersecurity yeah. aspect, yeah. Yeah, but sure. I mean, I'm sure it exists. I would say too, like, um, I think what's really interesting too is just the compliance perspective. I mean, you think about all these kind of data sovereignty. You mentioned, uh, you know, China. And I mean, the, the data sovereignty laws there seem to be changing fairly quickly. Um, you look at Europe and some of the data. Um, so I mm. think if you're an enterprise consuming data um, you know, again, you carry forward some of those, uh, data supply chain kind of liabilities, if you will, uh, if they do exist or, or even wanting to know if they exist. So I think, you know, visibility into your data supply chain is, is key. And, um, I think more and more organizations are going to have to start looking at that and, um, and then putting a price on high quality versus low quality. I mean, it's very difficult. I mean, we think of data observability as is a way to kind of, a price on commercial data and mm. um, you know is it good data is it bad data sometimes you just want cheap bad data to kind of feed a, a learning algorithm where you just need a lot of scale and other times you may want to buy more expensive uh, lower volume data just because you'll get better outcome on that so.
0: And on the cybersecurity side, I mean, I, I know there's, there's a really big story here, and you guys have done a fascinating study on this, like, log four-shell vulnerability that we'll get into in, in just a minute. But I'm curious about the role that data poisoning plays in this uh, in this picture. C- can you unpack that a little bit, and, and what are some of maybe the stories you've encountered when it comes to data poisoning?
1: Yeah, and, you know, I'm... Um... <sighs> I have been in the cybersecurity field, but I'd say like there are a lot more folks who are more intelligent about this than I am. So I'm going to use a term, though, that is often used kind of in the cybersecurity world called fuzzing. And, you know, fuzzing is when you unintentionally throw a lot of data at a particular uh, software application and see kind of what unintended side effects result from it. And it's a way then that when you fuzz a system that you're able to kind of figure out like how does it behave abnormally? And for us, our kind of fuzzing experience was really just watching these data pipelines over years collectively from different vantage points in different industries. And you'd see things break, you know, you'd say, well, why did that Kafka node go down in the cluster? Why did that Spark node go down in the cluster? Like why did Elasticsearch not do something that it was supposed to do? Um, and then when you do kind of a, a deep dive postmortem, uh, you start to see that it was probably an unintentional malformed piece of text inside a parquet or a CSV file. And you say, well, geez, like if that caused that, what would happen if somebody deliberately did something like that? And right. I think, you know, that, that kind of unintentional fuzzing of these systems using these classic kind of data transport uh, file codecs like parquet, avro, CSV, TSV. I mean, that was kind of how we, learned a lot about how these kind of vulnerabilities may exist and it's it's a big part of our data security story it's not necessarily that we saw intentional um you know packaging of malicious payloads but sometimes they're just unintentional we talked about the data factory it just could be a mouth mal- you know manufacturing glitch on an etl job that created like a partially completed file or text string in in a csv that just caused the system to go down
0: and, and how do you detect that when it happens? I mean, that, that seems like such a daunting challenge. Just, there, you know, there's an issue in the data somewhere. Um, with, uh, it's anomaly detection, I guess, or something like that. Like what, what's?
1: So we have this term that we call deep data inspection, and it's kind of borrowed as an analogy from like a network packet inspection. So if you think about 20 years ago, when folks were thinking about securing networks, there was a lot of encryption Uh, encrypting data that goes across the internet. And so people started to look at the actual contents of of network packets and they started to look inside of them. And it was
0: kind of this industry was born for forensic network analysis. So can I ask a really stupid question? Um, What is a network packet? Like what exactly should I be picturing? It's,
1: you know, if you think about routers and switches that get connected to, you know, wireless networks it's the most primitive piece of data that gets uh, pushed on to the network. Um, okay, so it will contain some information about, uh, you know, data, right? So it could be email, it could be uh, web traffic. It's just a fundamental kind of data transport, kind of building block. So we use that analogy with deep data inspection. So if there's deep packet inspection, then we start to say, well, let's start looking inside the data itself. So, you know, a CSV file, a parquet file, we can. Query the contents of that file, um, and so we started to develop software to do that. Um, oftentimes, these, these files will contain you know tens of thousands of individual data points. I mean, for some of our listeners who may not be familiar with a parquet or a CSV file, I mean, we always say think of it as like an Excel spreadsheet that's like you know ten thousand rows by ten thousand rows. I mean, and all you need is a single cell. Inside of that spreadsheet to contain some kind of malicious payload to trigger some kind of vulnerability, and so um, so we look inside that and we look inside and say, you know, is there something that looks anomalous in here against some patterns that maybe we've seen in the past or some uh, some of what we think may be occurring kind of research wise, um, and so that's what we kind of refer to as deep data inspection.
0: Okay. And I think that brings us quite smoothly to this like log four shell vulnerability that you've explored recently. Can you tell that story a little bit? Cause I think it does a great job illustrating the stakes potentially of this sort of inspection.
1: So, you know, uh, the log four J shell came out last December. It was a really big deal. Um, I think every organization very quickly, I think, uh, the government said it was like a 10 out of 10 in terms of just the, uh, The ability for it to be exploited and the simplicity of the exploit. So the first thing that we did, obviously, just like every other kind of business, is we looked at a lot of the systems that we were using at the time. And of course, a lot of these kind of distributed processing systems are heavily reliant on Java and a lot of the Java libraries. And so we happened to see that, you know, I won't name it here, but you know, a fairly large open source uh, distributed processing application was vulnerable. And and everyone patched it fairly quickly. I mean, I think there was a great industry-wide effort to patch Log4j, but as kind of you and probably our listeners know, uh, oftentimes these systems just go unpatched for long periods of time. And so, you know, we we saw Log4j and we saw kind of how it was being documented to exploit systems. And we just took a different perspective on it. And, and we said, well, you know, what would happen if the same kind of vulnerability were packaged in some of these kind of file formats that we see, you know, every mm-hmm. day that every enterprise is working on and knowing that you know one of the systems was vulnerable, uh, we happened to run it through that kind of ETL process, and next thing we know, we were taking you know remote access control of that of that node in the cluster from deep inside you know a a private um, virtual private cloud, and so we were just like shocked, and and like I said, like you know it was one cell amongst probably 10,000 different data points. So it was like really tricky to find. And and we were just like,
0: wow, like this
1: is this is data poisoning. And- um,
0: How does that contrast too, sorry, with like how you would, how the standard approach would be to like exploiting the log4j vulnerability? Like what would be a more standard vector of attack besides the data?
1: I'm not an expert in this, but my, my understanding was that you'd have these kind of internet facing web servers that had the vulnerable logging library. And if you kind of sent, um, kind of a malformed packet string with the user agent was, you know, a particular string formatted in a very specific way um, that would allow you then to take over kind of that internet facing web server, um, which in a lot of ways it was, you know, the web server was kind of exposed to the internet anyway. Um, right. If you had kind of the proper defense in depth architecture, I'd assume that even if your front end web server was compromised. Hopefully that still wasn't like, you know, access to kind of the crown jewels of, of the enterprise. And so, you know, while that was kind of well-documented, um, that particular attack factor, I mean, the one that that we found was, you know, you know, exploiting a system that was well inside of, you know, probably most defensive perimeters from a cybersecurity perspective. Right. And, and took a path that, you know, sometimes, I don't know how frequent, but... Didn't always scan these kind of files there weren't traditional kind of application firewalls that would be scanning this kind of traffic so you know we thought it was um a little bit unique and again it was something that we published and, and made everyone aware of it was already a patch system but in our world it was like here's here's unfortunately the future right so you know we always tell people if you're a data scientist with a Jupyter notebook and use pandas like be careful if you're downloading that file from the internet to do some exploratory data science because you know as far as we know like how do you know pandas just wouldn't get exploited as soon as you open that file and parse it or a matplotlib library I mean you have to be a little bit paranoid to live in this world to think like that but uh, you know unfortunately I think that's kind of where where things are heading.
0: Yeah, it's incredible how the attack surface area just keeps growing and growing, it seems like, you know, what you've just described as the initial attempt to exploit the vulnerability, it sounds more like a a full frontal assault on an API. And it's just like, okay, let's let's go after it. But when you start to play this kind of Trojan horse game uh, and, and get in through the data to the, also, I mean, a lot of data gets stored, you know, not client side, like deep, like you say, deep server side, like really behind all those security barriers. And it's like, I, what that could do uh, is it's scary to sc- scary to think of. Um, I'm curious in that sense, like how have you seen things evolve over the last, say, I don't know, over the last 10 years, maybe as you've been involved in this space? Like, have you seen the complexity of sophistication of these sorts of vulnerabilities increase? Like what's the direction of change that you've seen?
1: Well, I think just in the cybersecurity, you know, um, market in general, I mean, people are becoming more aware of it and it's evolving faster because the, the repercussions of you know, you think about all these data breaches that occurred and the visibility they've had on those organizations and the the revenue impact. And um, so I think people are a lot more aware of it and probably like, you know, similar to a a cat and mouse game, I think the people who are developing these really um, nefarious kind of, you know, vulnerabilities and exploits are are having to evolve and get more sophisticated. Um, You know, we use uh, exclusively a programming language called Rust, uh, which, you know, inherently secure is very fast and you know we're starting to see you know more and more malware just this year that's being written in in a in a performant kind of you know secure programming language which i think makes it harder for folks who are trying to defense against those kind of things so i think it's just upping the stakes and again when you think about data lakes data warehouses um like you know lake data lake houses uh delta lakes i mean all those, like there really hasn't been an emphasis around security with those. And so you think about people that are using that data to kind of inform analytics and the systems that do it are traditionally not ones that you secure, you know, um, right. thinking about securing the outer perimeter. But like you said, a lot of these ETL analytic uh, machine learning kind of uh, internal kind of systems, distributed systems aren't. Truly, ones that people think a lot about securing.
0: And I think you you wrote about this too. This, this idea that you usually just discover these issues at the very end of the process. Once your your model fails, there's like an obvious external manifestation. It's usually at the very end of all that process. Um, is, is that uh, are, are there steps people can take to kind of catch things earlier? Like, what would you recommend to? Well, let's start maybe with the enterprise level because that's you know what what you're focused on most right now. But
1: Yeah, like I mentioned before, I I like that term called fuzzing, um, which is where you just pay attention when things crash. And, you know, I think I'm I'm a product of AWS where, you know, you do very deep postmortem on outages and uh, any kind of incidents. And I think for any enterprise, like if you see an ETL job fail, if you see an analytic that you're somehow able to kind of understand is not being accurate, I mean, do a deep dive. I mean, over time, you'll start to see these patterns, you'll start to put together like, ah, you know, this is what caused it to fail. And, you know, if, if it turns out a certain way or is formed in a certain way under certain circumstances and just document and retain that knowledge. I mean, that's how, that's how we got started. We just started to build that, that knowledge base from seeing how things fail um, and then trying to document and, and not just fix it, but, but really try to truly understand like what was the real cause of that failure. So that would be, you know, the, the best advice I'd give to folks, just pay attention to it
0: and i guess again the the vast majority at least for now the vast majority of these things are accidental are not kind of these intentional failures so hopefully there's i don't know a little bit more statistical regularity in terms of what those failure modes look like is that fair to say it is yeah
1: to be very candid like we have not seen at this point in time like a malicious data attack in the wild i think um there's a lot of conjecture about it and and we documented and published our research about one particular way to do it, uh, but we certainly have not seen it. Now, that being said, a lot of people who spend a lot more time in the cybersecurity industry than I do, that we've talked to and briefed, I mean, they said like, this this is probably the future. It's not necessarily yeah. what's keeping them up, up at night today, but five years from now, I think this is going to be uh, a series of threats that I think everyone's going to have to deal with
0: and i guess it's also like you're always climbing down that 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 ladder of sophistication in terms of these attacks where the average person even the average organized crime syndicate isn't going to be using the cutting edge stuff but you know nation state actors things like that maybe at first are using it and then gradually as tools become more and more available the attack surface area increases and there are more and more people exploiting these sorts of vulnerabilities too
1: i suspect that would be the case as well yeah i you know i'm Every every enterprise deals and has these type of systems. I mean, it's happening all over and all the time. Not that people are being compromised, but these outages are happening and these malformed kind of files are being processed. And um, so people are are learning from it. It's not unique to anything that we're doing. I mean, it's so uh, you know ubiquitous that there's going to be yeah. others who are who are going to figure this out as
0: well. But then I, I guess there's also the challenge too of like, how do you even you know, how do you even verify that this is or is not being used today in the wild? Because, I mean, if the attack is successful, you could be introducing vulnerabilities that don't surface until much later on, but like, by design. Um, Yeah, and it's something, because, like, we we talk a fair bit about uh, malicious uses of AI and, like, large language models, and there's always this question in that context about, you know, like, is, for example, is Russia, is China, are, are, Kind of adversaries using these techniques to interfere in democratic processes and it's like well if they are um, if you're using a genuinely human-like system to interfere then there's going to be very little evidence for it because it's human-like that's almost the point it's yeah that's part of the challenge it totally
1: is i mean you think about just subtleties and training data you know um if it were intentional that you could subtly change data sets that you knew would have an impact on an inferencing algorithm Right. I mean, they'd be so difficult to detect. I mean, the one that we found and published, it was real obvious. Somebody took control of, you know, a server deep inside of an enterprise. Um, but I would suspect a more subtle, longer term would be to just, you know, poison the data in ways that were almost, you know, impossible to detect, knowing that the, the algorithm that was trained off that data would be subtly, you know, changing kind of how it, how it saw the
0: world over time. And that could be, really, really difficult to detect would suspect. And and at the more kind of uh, individual level, because obviously a lot of our listeners build personal projects, you mentioned the pandas thing, like watch out what data you use for that. Uh, I'm I'm sure that will have sent a cold chill through the spines of a few people, but um, obviously we're not talking about this being a a present day massive scale concern for the average person, but are there steps that you think the average person ought to take when they think about data provenance, when they think about like, what data am I going to use for my personal project or things like that. Are there things at this stage they should already be thinking about? You know, not to oversimplify, but I think it's similar to you know what we all experience in our
1: email inbox probably on a daily basis where we get spam mail, we get links, you know we get text messages with links. I mean knowing what files you're going to be using, I mean, knowing that they're from a trusted source, if you're you know downloading you know New York City traffic data to do kind of like a example data science project, and you know that that data is probably safe and it's hosted on you know, a well-known site, I think you know there's some good uh, intuition there. But if you're looking at a site that doesn't have a domain and maybe it's just an IP address or something sketchy like that, I mean, you know, I'd say be careful because I, I suspect there's a lot of bad data out there. So I think it's that same kind of hygiene that we've all gotten used to about what we open in our email, email boxes or what text messages we open. I think applying that same hygiene to kind of the files that we consume from the internet for, for data science, I think is really important, but surprisingly, like you'd think it'd be easy because we're all so trained in that. And yet, you know, we, we still don't do it. I mean,
0: you know, yeah, well, but to your point earlier, it does feel like data for some reason we treat psychologically as like a safe category of thing. It's like our soft underbelly. We, we just, we assume that data just doesn't get used for adversarial purposes. And and shockingly, like like you said, it applies to enterprise as much as individuals, but um, maybe that's something that's gonna change. You know, you start imagining like people thinking about data the same way they think about spam email, that sort of thing. That's a pretty big shift psychologically for the whole space.
1: It really is, yeah. I mean, you said it, you know, spot on. It's. It's just we treat it differently. I mean, we treat it how it comes into the enterprise differently. The the ingest paths, the data pipelines, they're just they're architected differently than how regular, I'd say, more common type of data comes into the enterprise and how it comes through firewalls and how we treat it. And so, um, you know, you, you hope that it doesn't take a series of kind of you know bad incidents to bring awareness to it, um, but you know it is it is treated differently You're
0: absolutely right and do you imagine a future then where there are and actually maybe this speaks to the the design of the zectonal product but like do you imagine a future where at every stage in the data life cycle there's a dedicated series of checks uh, on data for deliberate poisoning or just like kind of crappy data for whatever reason or is it know, how do you imagine that architecture playing out in the long term
1: i think that's a great question i think I don't know how other folks exactly. I mean, we spend a little bit of time looking at other data observability products, and there's some great companies out there. But uh, you know, we have uh, we've architected our products so that we try to find data quality, data security issues before they get ingested into the data lake. So we Hmm. think of like that, and you know, there's many terms of data warehouse, data lake. um, I'm probably using them interchangeably and, you know, shame on me for doing it. But if you think about that enterprise data repository for us, once bad quality data or a vulnerability gets in there, like it's, it's game over, right. It's too late. Right. Like, and so we think about architecting, not necessarily like at the edge, but we think about kind of a product that will look inside data before it gets into the data lake. Um, because it's not enough just to be able to determine that there's bad data quality issues, but we wanna prevent it from kind of upstream. So I think there are some architecture paradigms that we'll need to change with that. Like to your point, like where do we monitor that in the data pipeline, like in the lifecycle of data? Um, and I think it will probably if you know, have to be various different points. Um, you know, what does that data look like pre ETL? What does it look like post ETL? What does it look like once it is in the data repository? Um, I think that's just a healthy way to
0: look at it. Interesting, and, and from a, a, a almost a business standpoint, I'm, I'm curious because every time I see a company that's selling to enterprise at scale with all the legacy uh, tooling that comes with that uh, kind of the big challenge of customization. Do you find yourselves building uh, custom solutions for enterprises? Like, is it basically a case by case basis? You kind of look at the whole architecture of their data supply, and you go, okay, you need checks here, 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 and here. Or is it like a one size fits all thing? Or are you seeing some at least some consistent threads?
1: So, I grew up in the era of you know SaaS business models. Um, you right. know, working at AWS and seeing kind of the boom in software as a service, and I think the pendulum has swung a little bit the other way. Um, mm. You know, SaaS business models are great, and there's many efficiencies you could drive out of it. But I think, especially when it comes to enterprises' data, there's still an aspect that I think needs to be kind of on-premise. And I think we've built our product to be really lightweight it's almost like a utility that you would install on a Linux system. And so having you know these big Spark clusters that are looking inside the data warehouse, they just felt like that was too heavy of a lift for a lot of enterprises. And so we realized based on our experience that the, the best thing we could do was kind of hand our software in a really easy to way use to our clients without us having visibility or access into their data. And mm. I think enterprises get very, you know, um, finicky if they're handing kind of the keys over to third parties, right. right? And and you think about a lot of the threats that are that are coming in enterprises, they are coming through third parties. Um, there, so so we designed a product that was very lightweight that you know we could get up and running in a couple minutes, a couple seconds, and kind of interrogates the data from there as opposed to like a big heavy kind of software as a service. And I think too, like we're, you know, a post GDPR company. And so you think about those compliance regimes that now everyone, not only countries, but now even individual States within the U S are, you know, starting to impose. And so I think that's also going to benefit us how we've designed and built the product so that we could kind of just snap right in. And there's not like this monolithic, you know, SaaS product that exists in some Amazon region that, um, you know, needs to support various constituents. So, so we've we've tried to incorporate a lot of lessons learned around architecture around data and data governance data provenance data liability into our product to make it as lightweight as we can
0: it's really interesting to hear you kind of reference the the policy landscape the GDPR story as almost integral to the foundation of the company or at least the architecture of the product and i think that's something that uh, a lot of people might not realize especially if they're working in a smaller scale startup that sort of thing like this is a thing that does change the way companies operate, and uh, it's really interesting to hear, like the pre and post GDPR uh, period, and how much how much adjustment. Like, how much how hard would you say it would be for? I guess it's impossible to say, really. But like, what are some of the big challenges that are involved in moving from like a pre GDPR era to to post? Like, what are some of the things you've had to do?
1: You know. We've seen other companies
0: struggle with it Um, in a past life. Like
1: we helped companies migrate to that. I mean, when GDPR was on the horizon and these organizations that were, you know, serving international customers and um, they had to quickly come up with a way to kind of create these various storage footprints. And so we learned from that. I mean, there was just a lot of engineering time and cost and resources and um, people building different, you know, cloud-based data repositories. And I mean, you've seen kind of the big three cloud providers now have regions and points of presence and in so many different countries and and grown to kind of accommodate that. So we kind of looked at that and said, you know, like let's just design lightweight drop in really quick. And um, it was a big influence, but I think enterprises, at least in the United States, I mean, that's where most of our experience has been. Um, It's not as much even like compliance that drove them as much as it was just kind of safeguarding um, their, their data. I mean, they don't want third, party technology companies to know what, what's in their data. And we feel the same way. Like we don't want to know what's in their data. Like we want to give them a capability to look at quality metrics and to, to feed it back to them, provide alerts when things go bad. But we really don't want to have access into our, our tool once it's deployed in our.
0: Yeah. It's another liability technology. for you actually. It, yeah. really
1: is. it totally is. And it makes it, you know, I've been in sales, like enterprise software sales for 20 years. I mean, it makes the sales process a little bit easier when we kind of, lead with that message. So, um, so we designed a product that would help kind of make that more possible and easier, less friction for our customers.
0: Okay. Well, that's great. Uh, Last question. I just want to pick your brain about the future a little bit here. What are, I mean, you've, you've talked about some of the trends moving kind of more and more towards, well, potentially data as an attack vector among other things. And, and then the interest in data observability, what are some of the things that you expect to have happen in the future? Like, do you just see this continuing and eventually data just becomes like every kind of like it's almost like an api attack against the system like it becomes just one of these these walls that needs to be built or i don't know could, could you speak to that a little bit yeah i think you know we're
1: obviously i mean this is really uh, a no-brainer statement and so sorry but you know it's we are so reliant on data to feed our algorithms that you know we, we are becoming a byproduct of the data that that we use um and everything that we do our algorithms are based on it and so of course, it's going to be a target uh, for folks to kind of manipulate. Um, they're probably thinking of ways of manipulating it that, that we couldn't even comprehend at this point right. in time. Um, data poisoning is a topic has been out for at least two or three years and people have been thinking about how to poison machine learning training algorithms. So I think there's, um, this, unfortunately, like it's just another series of threats, just like, you know, the network was, you know, something that needed to be secured and, and built over, you know, a decade post time. So I think we're just going to be thinking about kind of how do we protect our data repositories? Um, I think another really interesting, fascinating topic for us is the the emergence of synthetic data. And, you know, I know um, you've you've talked about this on some of your prior podcasts, but the idea that you create intentionally fake data to supplement, you know, uh, the training of algorithms and and we've used it ourselves. I mean, if you think about, fraud detection use cases, the classic kind of imbalanced uh, training data set, hopefully it's imbalanced, you have fewer fraud cases and not fraud cases, but you know, you see there's real value to supplementing um, training data for, for something like that. But at the same time, as that kind of emerges, you know, enterprises are gonna start to really think about like, do I, do I wanna store that much synthetic data? Do I wanna not only pay for the cost of storing it, should I secure synthetic data in the same way I secure real data, Mm. if I'm buying commercial data, you know, uh, and paying a very hefty price for it, how do I know that my data brokers and, you know, data brokers, there's not always some great data brokers out there, aren't supplementing their data with, data And just not telling, telling us, right. And, and they're charging a lot extra and you think you're getting, you know, 10,000 monthly active users. And, you know, in reality it's 5,000, but they've supplemented it with synthetic data. So I think we're also going to be entering into a world where I think data observability is going to play a really big part in this, of being able to differentiate like real data from synthetic data. And, and that I, I think enterprises are going to have to figure out how they treat it. It's not really for us to figure out how to treat it. Right. But I think it is up to us in the data observability space to be able to kind of tell our customers or give them an indication when, we might be seeing synthetic data versus actual data,
0: and is that uh, I, I'm thinking back now to uh, yeah to a couple of podcasts that we did one one more recent one in particular about synthetic data and one of the themes there really was this idea that you could actually I mean you could enrich you could add value to your data by using synthetic data essentially you just for listeners who haven't heard the episode, something like imagine taking GPT-3 or like a large language model with all the world knowledge that it's collected, right? These models know what a clown is, what the sky is, they they know all kinds of concepts. And essentially you, you take your data as an input, you train the model to create new data as an output, but leveraging all that implicit knowledge that it contains, essentially creating an output that... Accounts for a whole bunch of facts about the world that maybe the original data didn't even consider or include. Um, so, in that context, I don't know. Like, I'm I'm imagining this is going to be a massive challenge. Can you think of any? Like, are there strategies? Are people even thinking about how to how to overcome that? We think about it.
1: I mean, we ask ourselves a lot of questions because we are starting to see it emerge. Just like just like you said, and it, you know, to your example, I mean, it's fascinating because the whole purpose of you know creating. In in our in our mind, creating a lot of these more sophisticated algorithms is to model the real world, right? And so sometimes you do need to supplement. But what happens when the real world that you're trying to model changes at a pace that's faster than the synthetic data could kind of incorporate, right? Right. Because it's kind of building on each other. So we ask ourselves a lot a lot, like, you know, how can we detect and differentiate? And again, we're not saying synthetic data is bad. We've been consumers of it. We see the value. But we think it's really going to be important to differentiate what's real and what's not. And, you know, it's going to be cost. It's going to be how fast can you pivot your algorithms and your models, just to your example. Um, It's just another level of awareness about people's data. It's, you know, how can I observe it, you know, and, and understand that a little bit more.
0: Well, I've got, I've got to say, reading a lot of the material you put together on this topic, it was like um, it was like the future coming at you in fast forward. Because I, I wasn't even aware at the time of the idea that like data providers would just be fudging the, the numbers, like packing the envelope with like a whole bunch of like re- you know even just replicated data, and then we've got synthetic data on the horizon, just like in a way, kind of value added, but if you don't know it's synthetic data, if you're operating under the assumption it's authentic original data, um, it's interesting, I mean, like we're heading almost to a world where a snake's eating its own tail. We have like AI systems that are gonna be trained on top of data from other AI, like synthetic data generated by other AI systems. And we may be doing a lot of it without even realizing it. So just a, a fascinating uh, exploration. Thanks so much, uh, Dave, for, for the great conversation.
1: Well, thank you for having me. And uh, I really, really enjoyed uh, these set of topics. And so thank you again for having me today.